0: Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. On the programme, two considerations of human impact on landscape and life. As the inaugural Hoth Midsummer Literary Arts Festival devotes a strand to Edwin Lutyens, we consider the architect's built legacy in Ireland. And Brian Dillon, author of a new book entitled The Great Explosion, offers a history of explosives and their effect on ordinary lives as well as the natural and built landscape. Hoth Castle in North County Dublin has been the home of one family for generations, stretching back centuries. As the castle prepares to open as the location of the inaugural Hoth Midsummer Literary Arts Festival, Arts Tonight met with one of those contributing to the talks dedicated to Edwin Lutyens, the architect who was responsible for major work carried out there in the early years of the 20th century. Matthew Jebb is director of the Botanic Gardens but is also a descendant of the Bering family who commissioned Edwin Lutyens to undertake work on Lambay Island. I also met architect David Averill of the Lutyens Trust and Julian Gaysford St. Lawrence for whom Hoth Castle has been his family home for generations. I asked him if there were memories in his family of Edwin Lutyens.
1: Um... I don't think the family was actually here when an awful lot of the building work was done. There are odd sort of stories. For instance, the um, door handles in the library there are at a very low level by um, modern standards. Lutchen's believed that you could find a door handle if you let your hang arm rest down, then the door handle ought to be at that level, and that for most people, uh, that ended up being the same level, where whatever height you, um, you were. So he... Um, put door handles at that quite odd level.
0: And a number of pieces, I think, came from Cholester House, is that correct?
1: Uh, Yes, Cholester House was a dar house of the family which was um, falling into disrepair at the time. Lutcham certainly did a fair amount of um, architectural salvage from uh, from there. The very fine 18th-century fireplace that's in the uh, library was undoubtedly taken from there. The... Mahogany doors. Uh, some of those definitely came from uh, Colchester.
0: Tell me a little of, of the history of the place before Lutchen's. Uh, some of what we see here.
1: The house here originates from twelve thirty-five. Uh, it was originally built as a Moton Bailey castle on this site. The family moved half a mile up the road from um, there first site which they chose in 1177 and uh, we never had enough money really to do what they wanted to do which was to knock down the whole thing and build a nice new modern house and it's been steadily altered over the years. There was a big uh, major building program in the 1730s. We don't know who the architect is. That is the portrait of Swift in the dining room, which is from that period is by Francis Bindon, and it is possible that he was the architect, but there's no evidence beyond the fact that he was known to the family and was an architect. Morrison certainly is supposed to have done some work here, most of it cosmetic, uh, in the 1820s. Uh, The ceiling in this room, uh, the boudoir, is... um, Almost certainly his his work, beautiful plasterwork ceiling. Yeah. Um, but Luton's commission in 1910 was that the house had been inherited by my great grandfather following the death of his uncle, the last Earl of Hove. It was run It was a run down 18th century house in need of some loving care and attention. It lacked uh, a lot of the modern amenities of plumbing, bathrooms central heating, corridors, electricity. And so his first job was to um, make it a comfortable house for a rich Edwardian gentleman. Uh, His second part of the commission was to add on to it, and in particular uh, add on the library in which um, the majority of the talks are going to take place. The Uh, Earls of Hove had managed to live without a a large library, though we have a complete edition of the racing calendar from um, (laughs) the 1820s (laughs) onwards, which uh, almost certainly came with part of their collection.
0: And I think that uh, races uh, were in part responsible for some of the money uh, that made renovation and, and building possible along the way.
1: That were actually probably a love of horses was responsible for um, impoverishment <laughs> of the family over a period of time, but the um, front gates were built on the proceeds of a, a win in the um, uh, Chester Cup in uh, 1848.
0: Was there, the um, budget there to make exactly what
1: Lutgen's proposed? I don't think there was. Um, he was under great budgetary um, constraints. The Gates had a house called Offington, which was um, uh, just outside Worthing. They financed the renovation here by selling that, and they were, other than the unfortunate fact that they inherited the Earl of Hosts' debts as well as his um, estate, the original design for the chapel was a sort of Baroque revival. Uh, What was um, eventually built was um, much more austere, early Italian Renaissance, revival type of um, building and I think that that was a reflection of their religious views rather than um, the views of their bank manager.
0: It Does it please you in a way to live in and almost daily observe this work that Lutyens did?
1: Parts of, parts of it is are um, exasperating. Um, uh, Lutyens was not the greatest architect of water escape processes. Um, uh, he had a loathing for any visible downpipes or guttering. All the downpipes are within the fabric of the walls, while he allowed for rainwater to get away. Uh, if plan A doesn't work, then plan B is very wor- rarely provided for. Uh, so the value of um, Hoth from um, an architectural point of view, we've got houses in Ireland like Rusborough for instance, which is a very fine, basically unaltered creation from the 18th century. Hoth is, um, is much altered, uh, it's very easy to see in the way that the fabric of Hoth has been altered how people have um, changed the way that they lived and related to um, to houses over the, like this over uh, the centuries.
0: Here in the library, we're joined by David Averill and Matthew Jebb. And uh, David, as an architect, if I could ask you first, what was Lupton's training? I mean, how how did he come into this world of of, of architecture and design?
2: There was a sort of slight myth that he was completely untrained, which is not totally true. He he was one of a large family, and did spend a lot of time at home and because he was at home and for something to do he would go out on his bicycle and go to the builder's yards and look at the the old traditional buildings of Surrey and what he used to do was bring a piece of glass and a piece of soap sharpened to a point and then he'd draw the buildings on this piece of glass. What he did have was a tremendous capacity for retention of what he saw. He wasn't necessarily the most energetic of of recorders by sketching but he he used to sort of retain the information now he did go who I think it was the Kensington School of Art for a short time. But he tended to go places and then absorb as what he felt he needed to absorb and then move on. So he, he didn't spend a great deal of time there. And then he went to the offices of uh, Sir Ernest George, who was one of the leading architects of the time. And again, he spent about a year there. Now, he he said in his older years, he slightly brushed that aside, but he, he must have taken that in. He was a great sponge for information and then he was fortunate enough to meet one or two people in the local area in Surrey where he was living and he got a commission and he started his own practice when he was I think only 19 or 20 so it was extraordinarily young to go out on his own his name is Edwin Lanzier Lutchens and his father was a great friend of Lanzier the painter and that's where the middle name comes from but his father was a painter of horses who was a very successful society painter for and then he sort of drifted off into eccentricity and the family drifted off into chastened times financially. One of the reasons why he didn't go to school was as much to do with the fact that by the time his father had educated all his older brothers, there wasn't a great deal of money left. In uh, Jane Ridley's biography, she points out that this is as much a reason why he he was educated the way he was. This room, in a broader context of Lutyens' work, would you
0: look around here and immediately say, this is a room designed by Edwin
2: Lutyens. Yes, I mean you can you can you can pick up characteristics having visited so many of his buildings that you get an instinct and it's usually right. Quite a lot of buildings are attributed to him which are not necessarily by him. Um, and but you walk in and you immediately see, first of all, the the windows, the, the bit, very characteristic glazing bar that he used, very char- characteristic moldings around the architraves. And what I like here is very typical of Lutyens is there's a combination of this almost rustics, the way he's treated the ceiling with the sort of very plain planked ceiling mixed with the classical orders with the pilasters and the articulation of the room. Very typical of his style. But what's really interesting about him is the way that he kind of tapped into the genus loci as well of the place. And everything is Lutyens, but it's also very much of its Locality and understanding the local materials and the local traditions as well. So it sort of sits very happily in that context.
1: I mean, the, the, the thing about the library is um, that this is about a third of the um, books that were collected. My great-great-great-grandfather, the man called Thomas Gaysford, he was Dean of Christchurch Oxford for 25 years, and more importantly, he was Reader's Professor of Greek at Oxford for 42 years and he ran the Bodleian Library for all that period. He was a senior um, university professor. His uh, son collected books, then suffered a misfortune. His uh, eldest son uh, died in his 20s, and my great-grandfather was a uh, naval officer and um, had been sent to sea when he was young and had very little interest in, um, in books in 1890 for no financial reason but for um to demonstrate what a fantastic collection of books he amassed he sold the best part of his collection over 8 days at Sotheby's and he had um a copy of the first the second the third and the fourth folio editions of Shakespeare's plays and um, the complete illustrated works of Blake and um, then a further third of this library was to, given away to a seminary but they were uh, religious books and so what's left here is um, a very small proportion of um, what was originally collected
0: A small proportion of an incredible wealth of literature my goodness, that's
1: extraordinary
0: the idea of those Shakespeare folios <laughs> Blake, how amazing what books are here? That are, what books remain?
1: Well, there's a large collection of um, classical texts, mostly 18th and 19th century books. We have got books from the 16th and 17th century as well. Things like both editions of Curtis's uh, Botanical Magazines, uh, which are all along here, go back to the 18th century. And what's nice about them is that they're, um, they're all illustrated. Mm, they're beautiful. And we um, uh, got, uh, for instance, an international edition of Milton's Paradise Lost published in 1690s, in translated into Latin hexameters, Paradisus and Mises. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, quite a lot of interesting stuff, and some very, uh, I think, my. Great grandfather was interested in bindings as well as in uh, in books, and um, a lot of the books are very finely um, bound and collected for that reason.
0: Julian was saying that uh, that all the downpipes, uh, all the drainage contained within the walls, of course, <laughs> creates probably creates some problems. But the the this extraordinary depth in those walls.
2: Yes. Well, he he wanted to. Understand the medieval quality of the building and work with it. He did have a tendency to bury his downpipes in quite a lot of projects, which has produced quite a lot of problems. Certainly, not not on Lambay. They're, they're, they're outside the building, but uh, in Lambay. But uh, certainly, I know of some of the projects in England. Famously, Castle Drogo. The National Trust are spending 11 million at the moment on uh, working on trying to t- keep the water out. But um, in in that particular case, his client. Defied his request and asked for the walls to be made solidly as it was to be a castle and so they, they didn't put in the cavities which might have prevented the dampness from coming in but what is so wonderful about these deep reveals is that sort of it works with the light and it really uh, softens the light especially in, the, in a library which is what you want. Of course protect the books from light.
0: Matthew your family had very very close connections with Lutyens and tell me ab- about those connections and then that deep connection to Lambay.
3: Well, my great grandparents bought the island in 1904 and they were looking at a copy of Country Life where Ed- Edward Hudson, who had actually founded the magazine Country Life, had converted Lindisfarne Castle using Edwin Lutyens. And they immediately saw the potential for what he could do for them. And in 1905, they invited him over to the island. That began a friendship that lasted their entire generation. They were firm family friends. Every summer, Edwin Lutyens and often his wife, Emmy, were out on the island. Edwin Lutyens became godfather to their son, Rupert Revelstoke. And it was a remarkable combination of where the client and the architect absolutely saw eye to eye. They had a passion for the arts and crafts movement. And... When that happens, you know, great architecture results. One of Edwin Lutyens' famous quotes is that great architecture depends upon
0: great clients. It's quite a concept. And uh, uh, gardens as well. So he he had such a strong sense of not just the architecture of a house, but everything around. This is your area now as
3: well. I think one of the most important influences on Edwin Lutyens was uh, meeting Gertrude Jekyll, a garden designer. When she found Edwin Lutyens, as a a young man, she suddenly realised here was the man to design her house. She had spent years thinking about what her house, Munstead, would. She built a big garden, and it, it lay without her house for years and years and years. And then the concept of what she wanted was crystallised in meeting Edwin Lutchen's And it was from that springboard that not only did they form an incredible working relationship in that she developed many of his gardens around his buildings, but he also understood the importance of that landscape immediately around a house.
0: And what, David, are some of the, the maybe the best examples of, of that combination that we'd see in uh, in Lutchens's work around around Ireland?
2: I think a lot of people are familiar with Haywood, which is just near Abbey Leaks and which has been looked after very well, more recently by the OPW, but previously by the fathers who ran the school there. And that's been restored and maintained very well. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a lovely example for people to go and see. And it's this contrast between the formality of Lutchen's softened by Jekyll's planting and mm-hmm. she was a, an artist whose eyesight faded and as her eyesight faded she turned to gardening as a way of developing her creativity and she used colours in a particular way, uh, understanding how the plants could could complement each other On Lambay there are uh, the original planting plans are still can be seen and, and her understanding of using drifts of colour in a particular way is very kind of artistic and the most famous uh, garden that people can see is come that is uh, in the National Trust in, in the UK and that's a great starting point for the relationship between Jekyll and Lutyens
0: uh, One of the remarkable features of the library here today is that we can look at some of the original plans the original drawings for the work here in themselves these drawings mm-hmm. are, are remarkable but it's it's also great that they survived and I suppose it not at that time, I'm sure lots of architectural drawings did not survive.
2: What we know, when he passed away in 1944, he, he died in his bedroom with, with the drawings for Liverpool Cathedral around him, and that was his great, unrealized project. But after he died, quite a lot of the, his, his office drawings were um, basically disposed of, because they didn't know what to do with this vast quantity of drawings. So the fact that clients have kept drawings is so significant because it keeps a record and an archive whereas the developmental drawings uh, arriving at a scheme have been lost in so many cases. Here we've got a wonderful record of that development of the scheme and you see how things change between the initial design and presentation to the final built scheme and that's you know as interesting in, in itself in some ways as the as the result. Uh, Because if we look at at one
0: that took my eye in particular, which is the drawing for the the chapel, which was changed, it's fascinating to see how somebody envisaged a piece of architecture and then to contrast it or compare it with with what was developed.
2: Yes, I mean, and I think that's as Matthew said, it's about the relationship between the client and the architect, and a client gives a brief to an architect at the beginning and. The architect will interpret it, obviously, and, but they don't always pick up the stick <laughs> <laughs> in the right way the first time around. So uh, in Hoth, I think they modified and simplified the design so that what, it, what resulted in the end is a much more uh, simple and elegant solution. They're almost beautiful objects in themselves, these drawings. Yes. Uh, one of the things I read about Lutyens is that he was very shy with his, his pupils and he would never correct them when they were working in his office and he would come down because his house was above the office and he would come down at the end of the day and put transparency paper over their drawings and <laughs> correct them so that when they came into work the next day <laughs> they were corrected <laughs> but without yeah. being admonished yeah. in front of them mm-hmm. The drawings would have been done by hand obviously so I mean, nowadays everything is done by CAD drawings mm-hmm. and it's, it's digitalized, and it, the, the, something of the heart of, of the process has, has been lost that connection between the pen and the creator of the drawing this has been lost.
3: One of the extraordinary things on Lambert is we have a single working drawing that exists and that is in a collection of Jekyll archives and on that drawing are notes done by Edwin Lutchen's pointing out which parts of the wall are not to be plastered on the outside. So this is a very rare insight into an actual working. Like David says, the, that there is a discussion, a decision is made, but there's no record kept of it. But in this case, we have that marking and this was a plan. And that he then took along to Gertrude Jekyll and then she scribbled on it all her thoughts of how the garden would be laid out. It's been preserved by this fortuitous circumstance that it ended up in her hands
0: and that is how it's ended up in an archive. Then the, the work that can be seen on Lambé, is there a link in a sense, aesthetically presumably there is, to, to what we see here in Hoth?
3: There's all sorts of little features of design that immediately spring to one's mind. David was mentioning that earlier, that when you're you go into a building or look at a piece of Lutchen's work you're often immediately reminded of other things having been brought up in a Lutchen's building and and around all the design work it becomes ingrained in one's memory what you're looking out for so here in Hoth there's a staircase the balusters of that are done in limestone on an external stairway in Lambay. So it's, a, it's a sort of an echo from one building to the next.
0: Lutyens is often described as being this almost archetypal colonial architect, British architect, but there, there's something else. He obviously had a deep love of Ireland and what he might achieve here.
2: Well, I think people don't realise that he had a very strong Irish connection, which was the fact that his mother was from Ireland. Her name was Galway, which is an unusual enough name, and uh, she uh, imbued in him a great love of Ireland. And it was one of his. One, in in the biography, it says that he was at his happiest and most relaxed when he went to Lambay, and it was partly that great relationship with the Baring family, but partly that in Ireland, since he could relax and he could be himself, that that informs, I think, his 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 work in Ireland as well. And there is that very strong bond.
0: Julian, are there some photographic records of, of the work in progress here?
1: Yes, we have photographs both of what the house was looking like before, during and after the work. Um, and um, uh, they're basically in family albums, which we, we, which we keep here. Do you have some we could maybe have a look at? Yes, indeed. Hmm.
0: David, it must be fairly unusual to have this combination of photographs and plans and the the complete work still standing?
2: It is unusual. Um, Most of the original houses have passed through different ownerships, and Ireland is unusual in that the two houses that he's most closely associated with retain a continuity of ownership. Uh, All the UK houses have lost that, and the only one that still survives in continuous ownership is uh, a French house called Les Bois de Moutier, which again has a wonderful Jekyll garden. Um, So it's terribly important to have that archive and that record. Mm. Julian yeah, here.
1: Here's a picture of the work actually, um, the occurring you can see the um, pile of rubble on the front lawn scaffolding, wooden scaffolding yeah. on uh, on the uh, the tower that uh, we're, we're standing in at the moment. Uh, you can see the Lutton windows on top there and then the possibly Morrison windows that were um, mm-hmm. at that time in the um, drawing room and uh, and boudoir. Clearly from the drawings we've got here the Plan was to retain those windows, but they don't look quite in place there. Oh, and exactly and um, clearly, at some point or other, a decision was made to um, uh, to replace them. Mm.
0: I mean, there's obviously an extensive family history recorded in in these photos, but it, it's it's fascinating to see the the record of the building and of, of that connection to
1: Lutyens. uh Here's a picture of the of the hall as it was before Lutyens came here. The portrait of Swift. Uh, hung in the hall rather than in the dining room Uh loads of dodgy armour a bit of stuffed animals the cornice Painted dark, estate brown. Rather. Somebody had a taste for brown, I think. After. Yeah, I think they, they they bought a job lot of um, brown paint and applied it liberally. <laughs> and then this uh, Victorian uh, fireplace, which um, thank God um, Lutyens replaced with uh, a wind dial and um, a surround, surrounded with um, a window surround from Colester House. This here is the dining room, which was a um, state bedroom at the time. Again, the pillars were. Um, Painted dark brown. Luton tended to substitute white for um, dark brown in all his color schemes. And while the dining room has been repainted since nineteen ten, uh, we've kept the exactly the same um, color scheme as he um, as he chose.
0: And it, it seems to have been quite an efficient timeline as well. That the, the build seems to have been done very, really, re- relatively quickly.
1: Yes, we. The last Earl died in uh, March nineteen oh nine. The date of these plans is uh, January. Uh, 1910. We know that the um, house was ready to be moved into by the summer of 1911. Mm. Uh, So the building work took a year and a quarter, a year and a half, something like that.
0: David, when you consider Lutyens' place internationally, how do you view his linking something something old with, with his own vision of something new?
2: Of all the arts and crafts influenced architects, he was perhaps the one who was most able to take on board the lessons of the arts and crafts movement, but at the same time to understand the classical as well and to and to bring those two together. In a sense, we architecture has changed so radically in the 20th century, and, and Lutyens' legacy was to some extent bypassed. Pessner famously disregarded anything from the early 20th century that he'd done, and it was only really in 1981 when the Haywood Gallery in London decided to do a revival exhibition that a lot of his work began to be re-examined and rediscovered. And that was when I, as an architecture student, sort of began to realise that there were other architects than Le Corbusier or Mies. And, um, and we were sent down at the time as students to sketch in the War Memorial Gardens, which at that time was pretty sad and, and derelict. And But even then you could see you know, what he had achieved and the the understanding of detail and the understanding of materials, which is something that is universal and should apply to any age, really. He was simply the best at what he did and and that always stands dead, whatever age.
0: It's it's ironic in a way that many people will... Think of him in relation to uh, work he never managed to do, which mm. was the, the, the his drawings for the municipal gallery, yes. and that that very iconic image of the the gallery spanning the, the the Liffey, which could have been amazing. Yes. Let, let, let us say whether it would have worked or not. Yes, but yes. perhaps it's important that we we remember to look to what he did manage to achieve and mm. build and and work like this and and the work on Lambay.
2: Well, he was incredibly prolific. I mean, his work. Spanned from sort of the eighteen eighties right through to the nineteen thirties, and and he produced numerous country houses, both altered and from new. Uh, and when you when you think of, of how difficult it is to get anything built nowadays, to see, when you see New Delhi and the scale of what he achieved, and knowing his control of detail that he oversaw that and was able to produce a consistent aesthetic on such a scale, is is phenomenal. I mean, I, th- I don't think he took holidays. And, uh, you know, he was a man obsessed with the quality of what he did and getting everything right. And you see it in all of his buildings. The details, they're always brought to a conclusion. There's always a logic, an overriding architectural logic to what he did. What was his work in, in New Delhi? Well, he was commissioned around 1912 to to d- redesign the new capital of India and so he went out w- with uh, amongst others Herbert Baker who was his friend and to some extent his rival and Herbert Baker had been working in the colonial buildings in South Africa and Lutyens had been brought out there and I think I think he thought I'll, I'd like a bit of this action if it <laughs> 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 and and when New Delhi came up he certainly got a lot of action in the sense he would go out there every year so that was a huge commitment both in terms of professionally in his time and he would travel out on the boat and you, you would be drawing and writing prolifically as he traveled and sending back his wonderful little um, letters to his children and to his family and sending drawings out to the office and then he he would spend about a month every year out in India and even now it, it's a little bit under threat because there's pressure from developers to move into this zone of New Delhi that he developed because it's quite low rise that's probably his, his greatest built achievement. His greatest unbuilt achievement was the, the cathedral at Liverpool, which people may now know he built the crypt. What people call the wigwam cathedral is built on top of the crypt. That was just perhaps one project too far at the scale. you know. Matthew, uh, have you developed an,
0: a sense of affection for, for Lutyens through, through your own family connections and through your observation of, of the work he did? Very much so. My
3: father was an architect and I always wanted to be an architect myself. I ended up as a botanist. I'm very happy as a botanist. But um, every time I revisit Lambay, it is such a pleasure looking at a a landscape of Lutyens' buildings. As we've been talking about, Lutyens' altered medieval buildings, uh, 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, they're all combined there on Lambay. There's a whole landscape of buildings from completely different eras, but he has united them. And in the same way that New Delhi was planned as a city, every street was laid out. Lambay has been so carefully thought out how the approach from the harbour to the house, to each building relative to the others, has been carefully considered. And so it is beautiful. It's just sort of perfect. And it's a sort of place that, you know, should never be altered. You could never put up a building there without completely destroying what is
0: a perfection. The Hoth Midsummer Literary Arts Festival takes place from June the 5th to the 7th. Brian Dillon is author of a new book entitled The Great Explosion, a history of explosives and their effect on the natural and built landscape and on the living. When I met with him recently, I began by asking him how he came to shape and write the book. In a way,
4: the book goes back about 15 years. Uh, I moved to Kent uh, as a postgraduate student in the mid-90s. And I had friends who lived near the place where this event happened in 1916, out by the marshes of North Kent. And uh, on Sunday afternoons, we would go walking around here. It's a really beautiful landscape, dead flat marshland. It's a bird sanctuary now and has been for decades. And at some point, my friends took me and my partner into the woods and led us on a sort of mysterious trek uh, on a very sodden and dark afternoon until we came to a dead drop in the ground filled with concrete and what looked like blast walls, really thick concrete walls. And they said, this is the remains of a, a gunpowder works. They knew very little about it, and I knew nothing about it for a long time after that. But it sort of stuck in my head. And eventually, having walked that landscape, explored a bit more of it, I promised them maybe a decade or so ago that one day I would write something about it. And so it hovered about in the back of other projects. I wrote a little essay on the the explosion itself for the Dublin Review, maybe eight or nine years ago. But somehow that didn't get rid of it in my mind. And I'd got to know more of that landscape and more of Kent, where I live. More of the kind of industrial and military history, various ruins that kind of hover still there ghostly in the land. To the point where eventually I thought, actually, I've got to do this. It has to. It's a book. Maybe you'd read a little from what you call the overture to the book. Certainly. So this is uh, very near the beginning. It's a Saturday night in the second spring of the Great War. Here on the marshes, among the huts and houses that the new workers have learned to call danger buildings, each day is much like any other. Only nightfall brings rest from the tasks at hand, unloading liquids and powders and pulp from boats and trucks, mixing or purifying the noxious mass, draining and sifting and drying. Or out at the western edge of the factory pouring and pressing, shaping this poison till it will squeeze into its metal bed and sleep for a while among serried ranks of shells or bombs before being hefted back onto lorries and trams or down to the jetty. The stuff, so the older workers say, and some of them have been here since before the war, will strip your hands raw or turn your whole skin yellow in a matter of weeks. For this reason, the young women who've come to work at the factory in the past year and at others like it have become known as canary girls. There's nothing to be done But pull the belts tighter on their thick new uniforms and think of the danger money and the men at the front for whom this redoubled effort, this acceleration of production, was begun last summer. And not think too hard about the fires, and worse, that locals remember about rumours and reports from other factories. When it starts, we may surmise, it's with the merest pop or crackle, unheard, unseen, or even if noticed, of no very pressing import to those workers who know the place well. Later, at least one witness will report hearing a fizzing sound as he passed by building number 833 in the morning, but by then the process would have been well underway. Tomorrow, the small sounds now quickening infinitesimally in this corner of the landscape will grow louder until, at last, they gather around them other sounds of voices and machinery and movement, shouts and fast-moving rumours, telephone bells and revving engines a rush of air and flame and earth, shredded metal and split timbers, and at length a noise, or several, subsumed in one, that not all of those present will have time to hear. A sound that's also a force, a solid wave rushing across a flat expanse, a sound that swells among surrounding buildings, the nearby fields, the boats and jetties of the shoreline, stretches out towards towns and cities, military camps on distant coasts. A sound groan, from the seed of the small agitation of the air here in
0: the dark. Brian Dillon there reading from his book The Great Explosion, Gunpowder, The Great War and a Disaster on the Kent Marshes. Brian, there are many unpleasant realities in these pages about the pearls of working in the munitions factories, the danger buildings, the danger money and the so-called canary girls that we heard about briefly there in that passage, whose skins were turned yellow by the noxious ingredients they worked with, including TNT and variations of it. Tell me a little bit more about those so-called Canary Girls. So by the middle of the First World War, and I suppose when we
4: think about munitions factories now, this is always remembered, many of the workers, and in some places most uh, of the workers, were women. And this was true at Kent. And people had moved from all over the country. Many of the workers were local. In fact, there are still families who had ancestors who worked at the factory. As it happens, this accident, this explosion in April 1916, was on a Sunday, and that meant that all the women workers had the day off. So, in fact, it was only men who were injured or died on that morning. But they also would have come from the local towns and villages, the nearby town uh, of Faversham very ancient town at the centre of the kind of what I call in the book the gunpowder archipelago um, of the the southeast of England. 108 of those men died.
0: The Canary Girls and and more generally the women who were involved in the industry I suppose were the subject over the years of a range of writings by, by literary figures Conan Doyle and Rebecca West among them. Um, Doyle seems particularly gung-ho in a way in his portrayal of, of the women. Uh, would you talk to me a little about those celebratory and then the more critical views of the women workers. So during the war, a number of writers, uh, among
4: them, as you say, Conan Doyle and Rebecca West, were invited to visit munitions factories. And in fact, Conan Doyle and West wrote about the same factory, which was at Gretna, an absolutely vast complex. They don't, of course, mention it in their articles because you couldn't, because you couldn't let that kind of information out in the press at that point. Conan Doyle coins um, a particular phrase that hangs around still in the history uh, of uh, explosives manufacture. He calls the particular mixture of TNT, the devil's porridge. And I was kind of really interested in in the sort of texture of how you write about somewhere like that in the middle of the war, where you have this extraordinarily complex military machine and industrial machinery at work, vast bureaucracy and so on. But when writers go there, they pick up on these details and very, very vivid sense of the kind of texture of what people are doing physically. Rebecca West says some similar things. In fact, she says it at one point, weirdly, that the TNT is like a dough or a cake mixture. And she imagines the workers plucking bits of it and tasting it just out of curiosity, because the work is so dreary and so boring. But she also refers to those women workers as being like figures in Dutch paintings. So this is very beautiful image that's entirely at odds, of course, with the reality of this war machine that's at work by that stage.
0: How did you reconstruct the history around the explosion? I mean, obviously, there aren't any Living voices left. None of the, of, the, of the people from the time are around to give testimony. So you're, you're looking to written sources. But I presume as well that there's almost a lateral way of thinking into a landscape and an event that accumulates, as it seems to here, into a, a certain reconstruction. There's
4: a written and oral record. So the, the written record is partly official. You know, the, the Home Office uh, wrote within weeks um, a vastly detailed report, and that includes um, testimony by some of the workers and the managers of the factory. But there was also later, 40, 50 years later, local historians interviewed survivors. So there's a series of oral history recordings where people give slightly different details and a slightly more subjective kind of viewpoint. But you're dead right, you know, part of the part of the task of this book because I'm I'm not a historian local or industrial or uh, a historian of war. I'm somebody who's drawn to this landscape and this story as hopefully something that I can, as you say, kind of feel or think my way into in the landscape. It's a very flat landscape for a start. And, and so it's, it's a landscape that when you walk it, you can see all of the points, all of the places that, as it were, played out, you know where, where the drama played out on that day. So I spent a lot of time trudging through the marshes and along sea walls and uh, through the woods, clambering sometimes dangerously over uh, large, ruinous clumps of concrete and so on. But that seemed to me to be the the task. In a way, a lot of the writing in the past few years, um, and especially now at the centenary about the First World War, is very focused on individual stories. And of course, this is partly a story about individuals. But it seemed to me also that among the characters in this story were the landscape itself, the material, the stuff itself, and as it were, the energy unleashed on it, You know, the energy of this uh, explosion. So I wanted somehow to, to feel my way into what it might have been like to stand in that landscape at that, at that instant, that sudden moment of catastrophe.
0: Robert McFarland, was, of course, a great writer of and on landscape. And I wonder if he's somebody you look to in terms of inspiration. Did you talk to him at all when you were looking at this landscape? I
4: know Robert um, a, a little. Um, I think we share a lot of interests. Um, I, in answer to your first question, yeah, I think, uh, you know, his, his writing uh, just kind of burns with beauty. I, I'm endlessly fascinated and uh, and influenced by it to some degree. I think we also sort of share some influences. I actually described the book to him very early on when I, I was first thinking about its form, because there's, in a way, the book's called The Great Explosion, so readers are expecting uh, something to go bang at some point. There's a In telling a story like that, there's a kind of structural uh, problem, which is, where does the actual explosion happen? Does it happen in the middle of the book? Does it happen at the start? And Robert said to me, well, surely, Brian, the explosion has to be on every page. And that was like a kind of challenge. I'm not entirely convinced that I've lived up to the challenge, but a sense, in other words, that in describing the landscape or describing the industry or describing the history of gunpowder or the individuals involved, this thing, this event, was always somehow... That that every moment was kind of pregnant with it. So that, that seems
0: like a great challenge. It's it's very interesting to, to read this book against the backdrop of preparations for the St Henry celebrations of nineteen sixteen here, and to think of an explosion in April nineteen sixteen in, in Kent. And it was gunpowder has always been a, a potent theme in England, or long been a potent theme in England. And it occurs to me though that, that there's this kind of invisible parallel history uh, almost under the narrative of this, with the rising in Dublin, and uh, I presume there was quite a focus at the time from London towards what was happening here. Perhaps away from something like this explosion.
4: The, yes, there was. The, I realised early on that there was there was this parallel. There was munitions manufacture in Ireland in various places in Ireland, including in uh, in Dublin. So I didn't discover, you know, a direct link that that would have been, you know, too too much really. That the shells and bullets made their way from from Kent to to Dublin, but. In the aftermath, in the Houses of Parliament, in the, the Commons, and then in the press reports, the two events are absolutely adjacent. They're being spoken of at, at exactly the same time. For you know a few weeks, the major, apart from, of course, what's happening on the Western Front, the major events are this explosion and the growing events in Dublin. And in a way, I was, I was kind of interested in, from the perspective of thinking about the 1916 rising and, and telling... A story that is obviously distant, but the very fact of, you know, these mostly working class workers um, in the southeast of England, they're not part of a, a great heroic, you know, story about Britain, about empire or about war, they're ordinary people, some of whom were extraordinarily heroic, it turned out, on the day. But it seemed like it was one of those, um, you know, the same thing happens with the history of uh, of 1916 here, that those kinds of smaller stories, micro histories, are, are increasingly coming to light.
0: You've spoken elsewhere about the, the struggle to find a voice for each piece you write. Um, I'm interested in the voice you find in this book. In many ways, it's, it's a very personal book, elements of memoir in a way, uh, as you document your engagement with the area and it and its factories, but there's there's also that kind of pure research you've talked about and the constructing of a narrative almost a fiction away from the accounts and reports of the events. Was it a big challenge to find the right voice to carry all of that? It
4: absolutely was partly because the it the book has a lot of kind of quite disparate material there's there's the story itself, you know what happened on the day, and you want in a way to to stay as close to the experience of those individuals as possible. So in a way, a lot of it that is based on those individual accounts, uh, especially in the, uh, the government report afterwards. You want to sort of stay in the moment with those people. But in a wider sense, it, to give the book a kind of unity, I was thinking really hard about what the other voices, the voices that have impressed me in this kind of writing in the past have been. And somebody like McFarlane, of course, is is one. And via McFarlane, Sebald is sort of unavoidable in thinking about a story like this and a landscape like this. In fact, I didn't open a book by W.G. Sebald for five years while I was thinking about this book. I went back, um, funnily enough, you know, I've talked a bit about Conan Doyle and Rebecca West. I went back to that period, not just during the war, but writers who wrote slightly later, in the 1920s about the war, but in a way without writing about the war. And in fact, the person I kept coming back to obsessively while uh, researching and writing this was Virginia Woolf. And I reread to The Lighthouse uh, and The Waves something about time, something about the pacing, of her prose but also her essays uh, great essays about you know flying over London or driving through Sussex something about the relationship between the body and the machine and the landscape maybe we don't think about Virginia Woolf in those terms uh, often enough and so there were sort of models for how you might find your way into a story like this through tone through voice very interesting because
0: uh, looking at the photographs in the book as well I I, I thought of Sebald and that wonderful grainy textured photography that that somehow blurs into narrative and into a landscape almost in it i'm interested in in your use of photography within within the book i mean you made a choice i think to take a particular kind of image and include it in the book i'm not sure that i did make a particular <laughs> a
4: special choice to do that partly they're what's available in, in archival terms um but I did make a choice in that, apart from to really direct photographs of the explosion site, you know, with, within days, there was a photographer dispatched to photograph the crater, the main crater where the main explosion happened and, and ruined buildings around that. But I suppose apart from that, I did make a choice, I guess, not to tell too much with my own photographs. I'm not a photographer, you know, they're, they're, they're quite amateurish. I didn't want to overstate things, you know, to make, for example, the photographs of ruins look too picturesque. They're not really picturesque. It's it's a mundane landscape in some ways. It's an ordinary countryside. So there's this kind of mutedness, I guess. Saybold of course, is the sort of master uh, of that. But he's not the only person who ever did it. I have, I, In a way, I have no problem with sort of inhabiting what is now almost a kind of tradition in the wake
0: of, of his use of photographs. The book ripples out, the, the explosion ripples out into a larger world and, and another explosion that you looked to is Halifax, in Nova Scotia, a year later in 1917, and uh, 2,000 people killed in right. 1917. It was, I think it was one of the biggest casualties from the explosion before Hiroshima. Yes, it uh, was. Uh, and why did you choose to look to Halifax and to the explosion there in examining uh, the explosion in Kent and the ripples from it? It became really obvious as I was re- researching the book that, in a way,
4: the Kent explosion was just part of a kind of constellation of disaster throughout the war, before, during, and after the war. And it seemed to me really useful, or hopefully useful, to, to give a sense of just how destructive this technology could be in other situations. Um, I don't I talk a little bit later on about great, huge mine explosions on the Western Front. But the Halifax explosion was the largest explosion of the the century until the, the atomic bomb. And it kills hundreds and hundreds of people. It levels most of the town of Halifax. And it was also filled with extraordinary detail so the moment late on in in my description of it when the telegraph operator who knows that two ships are about to collide that one of them is filled with explosives that this will destroy the town and take him with it sends his final message and the end of his message warning people um elsewhere is goodbye boys simple as that terrible as
0: that Brian, the, the Kent Marshes, um, I suppose, have been inspired many writers and artists over the years. Um, Dickens, for instance, Henry James. And I think in, in the book, almost something of, a, of an of course moment for you, uh, T.S. Eliot.
4: Dickens, the you know, the, this landscape is very much the, the landscape of the beginning and end of great expectations. People may remember the young Pip at the start of that novel, out on the marshes, terrified by the sight uh, of an old gibbet you know where hanged men would be left to rot dickens talks through pip about the flatness of the land and the the river in the distance and that eeriness uh, which dickens writes about Elsewhere, It's a landscape that he used to love to bring guests. He would show people around. You know, it's a landscape where near near his house, the painter Richard Dad, in the middle of the 19th century, had murdered his father. So for Dickens, it's a very charged landscape. It's a landscape of his childhood. And it has this kind of Gothic quality uh, in Great Expectations. If you walk that territory through the marshes now, you'll find signs that say, welcome to Dickens' country. But I wanted to take that, you know, it's become a kind of heritage thing, a touristic thing, although it's very bleak and not many visitors ever make it out to the furthest reaches. But I wanted to somehow include that sense of the bleakness, the strangeness of this landscape. You know, it's, it's always been there. And in a way, the strangeness of Kent is, is a topic of, of the book, my discovery of the kind of oddity of Kent. So Elliot famously sits in a hut um, in Margate, writing and thinking about the wasteland. And of course, the the very famous line on Margate Sands, I can't connect nothing with nothing. I had been living in Kent for years, many, many years. I'd been teaching at a university. I'd been teaching the wasteland and had never thought to just go and sit on that bleak seafront. And it's still pretty bleak, although it's now being kind of regenerated. And I became very interested in that connection. Many people have written retrospectively about literary Kent but it seemed to have something not just to do with the fact that it's a literary landscape that writers have moved across it and written about it, but that it had something to do with modernism and modernity in a sense that this landscape has always been traversed by newcomers. It's always been a place that's kind of in between. If you go back to Dickens, you know, Dickens is thinking also about the prison hulks that were stationed along the rivers along the Thames and along the, the Medway. It's always had this kind of eeriness about it. And that gets really, really heightened, I think, in. Elliot doesn't go walking the marshes, but the coast still also has that. You know, Elliot's Margate
0: has that sense of a kind of desolate oddness mm-hmm. about it. In the last pages of your book, you stroll into the yard of the farmer who owns the land around the old factory, um, Heather Flood, and finally get to walk the site of the explosion with her. there's nothing almost nothing there Um, was that moment an anticlimax you know the fact that the the location of this tragedy is so poorly marked uh, almost invisible or was there almost some comfort in the fact that it, it had been reabsorbed into the into the land into the landscape as you say, it had disappeared
4: almost entirely. And we we stood, Heather was very kind and walked me with her two dogs out past her Christmas tree plantation to this point where I had seen on maps, on ancient OS maps, on Google Maps. I knew, I thought I knew precisely where the, the point was. And in a way, this was the crux of what the story was, that, that it's all about the specificity of that point, the point in time where the event happens, the po- the place where it happened. And we stood in her field and we couldn't see it. There was nothing there. It was only later, looking at the maps again, that I realised there had been a slight gradient, a slight rise in the land, and that must have been it. So it had, as you say, it had sunk back into the land. It seemed worth preserving somehow the kind of modesty of that spot in the land. There isn't, for example, uh, a monument at the moment. There might be uh, in the future. But it seemed like standing there and realising the desolation of that spot but also its ordinariness was important. The book ends with me cycling home from the disappointment of not finding the exact spot where the explosion happened. And being sort of struck, I don't think I've exaggerated this, but being struck by the astonishing kind of beauty of that bleak landscape, but also just by its mundanity. And and maybe, you know, there are people coming back from school, heading to the shops, but somehow the place
0: seemed charged or recharged with the story itself and w- where where has the journey brought you within yourself and your your own writing because it begins with a sense almost of an alienation from from all of this so there's a there is a very particular journey for you through the book as well
4: i think it traces a journey in which i arrived in, in this place this very kind of ordinary corner of england at a point in my life in my late 20s where i was deeply depressed and really unwilling to pay much attention to the world around me, let alone landscape, you know, let alone nature, let alone, God forbid, military history. None of these things were, you know, interesting to me. And I suppose in a way, as a now man in his mid-40s, I feel more interested in the world. And perhaps that's a thing that happens to you in middle age. You look outwards. I notice things in a way that I never used to. As a writer, I think it's partly a kind of accommodation to... Ordinariness. When when I first started writing, and using the first person, using I, I wanted to place a more memoiristic writing, always in relation to other writers. And there are writers in this book, but maybe what where I've ended up with this book is that it's somehow like the uh, landscape itself. It's kind of settling, <laughs> settling into details. That that's where it ends. It it ends with describing a certain quality of light a certain quality in the, in the landscape and maybe that's the kind of journey is actually it's to do with attention paying more attention to the small
0: things Brian thanks so much Thank you The Great Explosion by Brian Dillon is published by Penguin On next week's Arts Tonight William Butler Yeats and the Theatre with contributors including Alwyn Fuere Tony Roach Michael McAteer and Christopher Fitzsimon Join us then Good night
2: Arts Tonight was presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleon and the Onloon.